Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. We'll start with wheat values. So old crop feed wheat has been very exciting this week. If you are a grain trader, you know you try and go home and express that the market's gone up eight pounds in a day or down six pounds the next day, and your wife pulls a blank expression at such as this conversation. I was excited by it. So where we've ended up with the market that went pretty well up to two two seven on the futures, it's currently trading as I record at two hundred and well, it's bid two twenty. It was as low as two eighteen fifty last night on the May futures. So the X farm value Feb is two hundred and nine, two ten for March, two twelve for April, two thirteen for May, and the late months are gonna be much more money. They're gonna be much harder to get your hands on. So two seventeen X June and two twenty X for July. So a bit of excitement at the tail end. There is lots of wheat sloshing around. There is wheat for sale and there aren't many buyers at the moment. There's a few buyers sticking their head up and now paying a premium over the futures, which is what we have been predicting. The only way you're going to get your hands on grain is by paying a premium now. And it's really how long the consumers can get away with not paying a premium that is the game. Also, if you're going to play the premium game, what's the most relevant thing? If the market drops to £200 a tonne on the May futures and you pay a £5 premium, that's better than paying a £1 premium when the futures are trading at 221 If you can't work that out straight away, then you're obviously under the age of 30. So, as I see it, the old crop wheat values are heavy from a farmer's perspective. Anything up in this sort of 220 range on the futures is quite an expensive cost for anyone. And I can't see any particular reason why anyone would really chase it to pay any more money than that. You know, before this war issue came in with Mr. Putin, we were kind of quite happily drifting downwards. And, you know, if that abates, I mean, we've got to wait two or three weeks for the Beijing Olympics to go on. So, uh, you know, Xi doesn't get any disturbance and Putin will keep the right side of him. He may well do something late Feb, but in the meantime, he can't keep the ante up that long. So I think it's more likely to drift than go up in the next few days unless we see some sort of real action which isn't really what we want, is it? So old got feed barley, 200x for March. Anyone who's selling feed barley with a 200 price tag has got to be, you know, what are we exactly waiting for is always the question. You know, I don't see that going up as the season goes out. Feed barley this is the first time I've said it this season. You know, I've said it the two seasons previously. Feed barley drifts downwards as the year gets towards the end. There's a new crop barley harvest comes along in Europe and the thing eases away. So 200x for March plus a pound a month is roughly where the market is as far as we're concerned. Not much feed barley out there, I accept that, but that's its value. Which leads on to oilseed rape, probably 590, something like that, if you've got any, but we keep mentioning crazy prices on the podcast and no one comes back and says anything anyway, so it's kind of like, I could say 620. No one can book me because no one's having a conversation with me, so we're paying loads. You phone us up. Let's move on to new crop. New crop, as we record, the futures are valued at £200 a tonne for November. We value harvest X farm 185. We value November 192. And so May would be 198X. 
If you actually were lucky enough to be one of the special ones and a member of our store, those prices for November would be 198 or for the May, 204 In other words, you get a £6 premium if you're a store member. But don't tell everybody because they'll all want to be one. Feed barley is harvest. Immediate movement that day, 165x. You know, if you're going to whap it in the same day the combine's in the field because you haven't got a shed. If you can give it kind of like August movement or, you know, a good two, three weeks and a bit of grace, probably you'll get pressed towards 170. But that is our call as opposed to you, you know, I want it gone now. That's when you get the discount price. Malting barley, well, that's an exciting one. It's 200 plus on all barleys, winter and spring. But this is the one where we can't give you specifics on the podcast because it's way too sensitive an issue. It's a market that's fought for. It's a market that's related to the underlying futures price on new crop. So if we see it drifting down to 189 again, it will start to pressurise this sort of price. I do think if you're growing winter malting barley, which is in very good condition, you may need to look at signing some of your barley up at £200 a tonne plus because it's a very good forward price in all of the history of trading malting barley. So just let's remember that. And as for spring barley, I appreciate most of you haven't even, well, you haven't planted it yet, although one or two have. But, you know, conditions hopefully are going to be favourable. We're going to get a crop in the ground. And as I say, the prices are at an exceptionally high level for forward contracts as we speak. So please... Have a little think about that amongst all the other things you're thinking about while you put your guns away for another year. Yeah, give us a call because that's a very competitive market and we've got some very, very competitive prices on it. New crop rape about 480, I think Ben said. We're going to move across to Ben on the oilseed rape on new crop. We're having a little shuffle around in the traders here because, you know, it's an opportunity for everyone to get an experience in a different line. And obviously I'll be going out to grass at some point, but just to reassure you, not just yet. Right, that leaves me with talking about the podcast today. We've finally got around to seeing a molster. I had a fascinating hour or so with Bob King. So it's a two-week session, if you like. The first week, we talk about the malting barley history, how Bob got into the trade and how the trade has developed in that period of time and some observations about, you know, current market. Yeah, so it's a good history. And then the following week, we talk very in-depth so it's a phenomenally good educational podcast about the makeup of the malting barley market. That's next week's edition you'd have to wait for. But for anyone young in this industry, when two people are having a conversation about how things are developing or why the market did what it did, the knowledge that Bob has particularly is immense. He nails basically every supply and why the market did or didn't do how it got to its price. It is a really, really interesting conversation, as is the first one. So please enjoy that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 or email info at And now it's time for Farm Chat. This week we have finally got a molster on board and I've got with me Bob King. So Bob, good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Andrew. We've gone through a number of people in the past and it seems surprising that I haven't actually got round to talking to a maltster or a malt buyer at any point because it's such a big thing in our county, isn't it? Yeah, and considering that we've known each other for nearly 40 years, it really has taken you some time to get here. (laughs) Fair comment. Let's start with that. It's rare to find someone still working older than me in the grain trade, and you're just just older than me, I think. I'm 59 and turning 60 any minute. Yeah, I'm I'm past the 60 mark. Just. So where did it all begin for you? Because I remember the first time I met you, I was working for Dalgetty Rackheath and you were working at Dalgetty Kings Inn. Is that the first place you went to? Yes, yeah, the first part of that life insofar as, yes. I started at Dalgetty in 1982. I don't have a farming background or anything. I just answered an advert for a farm rep for a job that had been filled. I'm a city boy. I'd been to university in London and my first job out of university was selling crisps for Golden Wonder. And I made the leap from selling crisps for Golden Wonder to trading malting barley at Dalgetty via about six months in the seed trade in Downham Market. Which city were you brought up in? Cambridge, in the middle of Cambridge. Okay. Yeah, I've got no arable background or farming background whatsoever. So uh, I just happened to follow my wife back up into Norfolk where her father, Neville Carter, who a lot of people know, was in, still is in the seed trade at 87. Right. I was up here without a job and saw this advert. Yeah. And all I had done was in the six months between Golden Wonder and Nalgetty was um, six months in the seed trade, as I said. But I'd done the crop inspecting course. So when I got an interview with Dalgetty because they were looking for a multi-body trader, not a farm trader, mm. I knew two barley varieties <laughs> by name. I got offered a job at King's Lynn. That's a big admission. Yeah. So you got the job because you knew two barley varieties. Yeah, and I still don't know anything about farming. <laughs> and actually, it hasn't done me any damage over the period of time I've been in work because I can just sort of put a blank face on when I get involved in conversations with <laughs> farmers. When they, when they start moaning. Yeah, yeah. another one. So Dalgetty's was therefore a bit of a baptism of fire because they were a big purchaser of malting barley for the big, what was then Distillers Company Limited, contracts. Yeah, the ironic thing is that at Kings Lynn and the same at Rackheath, we were buying malting barley from farmers local to both Kings Lynn and Rackheath, or in my case also out of Lincolnshire, and from the small merchants and everything else. And our markets were, as you say, the Distillers Company, Bass, big grain storage operations, or exporting it to the near continent. Mm. The irony of the thing is that we didn't sell anything to our local maltster, which in those days was called F&G Smith at Great Rybra. Yeah. I think it probably in the five, six years I was with Dalgetty, I probably sold less than 500 tonnes. But I remember at the time, Dalgetty owned ABM maltings. Yeah. So the big maltings was at Barry St Edmunds, yeah. and they were up in Lincolnshire. Yeah. But if I remember as well as in our Dalgetty days, we avoided selling to them as well if we could. So We yeah. were tarred with the brush of being bulkers, weren't we? Yes. It was an unclean big bell you carried around your neck at Berry Market because you were competing with the local molster, in their words, quote, pushing the prices up or whatever we would be guilty of. But those were days of extreme, you know, someone took a view, took a position and paid up and everybody had a choice of following or not. And invariably, in my opinion, they seemed to follow every time. Yeah. And I mean, all the barley was traded on the spot market or on samples or whatever. Nobody was selling molten barley ahead before harvest in any large volumes. Yeah, so I mean, I had six years at Dalgetty. Last year was in the middle of Norwich at Dalgetty Grain, looking after sort of international malting barley because they had an office in Hamburg and one in Antwerp. So I looked after the malting barley exports for the group. I forgot that, actually. The Dalgetty Grain, I always tell the story about Pete Brundle, who got promoted to Dalgetty Grain, probably when you left, I think. And he just had the most disastrous year trading in history. And and I'd had a really good year at Rackheath on Milling Week. And at the end of the year, there was kind of like, well, you know, you should all be happy. It's a team performance. Well done, lads. And he got promoted. And I just thought, this is not fair. So anyone who couldn't trade got promoted. So obviously, you were the exception to that. because Yeah, yeah, I filled a spot when Ivan Bishop, who people remember, he moved on. Mm. And I filled the gap. 
that. And as I say, I was only there for six, seven, eight months. Then it was F&G Smith. Funny enough, a person who was managing director here up to quite well, up to three or four years, Ewan McPherson, mm-hmm. he was at the time had been working for Shipston's, which was the breweries in Nottingham, but with the maltings. And I did actually, when I was at Talgetty, sell him a little bit of barley into Nottingham. He got a job within F&G Smith, Crisp, Anglian Maltings, up in Scotland. And then the job came up here. Norman Claxton was about to retire. And he tipped me off that there was this job to apply for. So I applied for it. I don't know how many other people applied for it. I do know some people who didn't get it. (laughs) And yeah, all of a sudden, Poacher became gamekeeper. I started here in May 88. Yeah. So is the gamekeeper job a cushy one then? There's the first question. All I would say is it's not the job I started with. Although I do the same job insofar as it's multi-barley procurement and some other bits, energy and logistics and things like that. I started here, F&G Smith, Crisp, had three maltings. Here, Ditchingham, and one in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And our total purchase of malting barley for all three was about 150,000 tonnes. And Ewan McPherson was doing the Scotland, so I really only had about 110,000 tonnes, 120,000 tonnes to buy for the two maltings in Norfolk. I mean, that was all bought post-harvest, and it was all bought on samples. So, yeah. I mean, in those days, I mean, I was just going through the list of merchants. I think Dalgetty, R.J. Seaman, Tyrrell Byford and Pallet, Stimson Pertwee, Harcorn, RHM, which became Allied Grain, Denix, East Coast Farmers... And there were probably others. Well, East Coast Grain, but that, and East, East Coast Eastern Coast counties, counties Farmers. farmers yes, yeah. yeah. So all of those were supplying into yeah, yeah. these two maltings. And then where we are now, we've got seven maltings, two of which aren't in this country, Poland and Germany. Yeah. And we're buying something over 550,000 tonnes of malting barley, which, again, is my responsibility. Because I can remember when you first were there, Norman Claxton, they had you beside him at the market. He was there for six months yeah. or so to guide you in. So, I mean, in these days, does that happen anymore? When you look to retire sometime you know, in 10 years from now, whenever, will you have someone shadowing you? I assume for a while, because, I mean, no two jobs are the same. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to yeah. it. So. Years away. With that in mind, you know, obviously it was Berry Market. You had, a, I guess, some sort of ritual that you went through every week. Do you still stick rigidly to a ritual? Yeah, I mean, in those days it wasn't just Berry. East Anglia was even then importing barley. So I would go down to perhaps Salisbury Market. Still going to London occasionally. Possibly go to Lincoln Market. Went to Dis when Dis came back mm-hmm. in a few later days. But certainly in those early days, it was all barley on sample through the markets. Do you miss that? The human, the personal contact side of it, yes. But, I mean, it's, it's a long while since markets disappeared. And the personalities who were market traders have all gone as well. That Only trait got... doesn't fit particularly no. in the telephone no. world. And the number of merchant suppliers mm. has gone down anyway through companies merging, some of the small ones cease trading and things like that. It's a completely different thing. It's far more similar to what happens on the continent. It's always been a transactional. On that particular subject, I mean, there's something missing in the dynamic of people dealing with people, mm. I think, because it, it suited me. I had a way of persuading people whatever face-to-face, which you can't necessarily do on the phone. But I think... I'm showing my age now, on the internet or just tweeting each other, whatever people do, to do a deal now, WhatsApp, let's do 5,000 tonnes. But do you think the industry has moved to such a point where, you know, no one looks at barley anymore? I think part of the trade does. We're probably slightly different, and one of our competitors is more like us. We've got a really diverse portfolio of customers, all the way from craft brewing through to the internationals. So therefore, we are buying lots and lots of different grades and varieties, Mm -hmm. and probably closer to the actual physical barley in that we do test a hell of a lot of samples and things like that as well. Is that because of you, then? Well, it's the way it's evolved for us to do it, and actually, what we find, it guarantees that our supply chain is solid, Mm -hmm. i.e. we don't get a lot of rejections. We get what we want. We don't just supply barley and have to make something out of it. 
we have dedicated supply chains and groups which other competitors may not have because yeah. they don't need that depth of knowledge. And that allows me to have some of that personal contact I was talking about. So I am on the phone virtually every other day, probably during the year and perhaps every day during harvest with those suppliers. But we're talking about something different. We're talking about the actual quality of the crop that's coming. The decisions on the finances that probably already been made. Well, that's the point, because we'll come on to your groups and stuff in a minute. The point I'm trying to get to is this season was a very difficult season. Mm. The winter barleys were were thin. There were some really Mm. low retentions. Mm. And then the spring barleys came along with a lot of wet weather forecast Mm. and a lot of, you know, the kind of thin stuff looking half dead Mm. on the side of some half-decent barley. And a decision had to be made about altering the spec, just going, hang on a minute, we need to be a little bit more forgiving. I'm going to blow smoke here, Bob. You did make a decision quickly. You looked at the barley, you recognised it, and you went, right, we need to move the parameters enough to make this stuff get in. Whereas one or two of your competitors simply did not and created quite a difficult scenario. My point is that in the future, harvest will never be straightforward like a clean piece of paper. You know, mm. It's going to have a season where it's too thin or, I don't know, the germination isn't quite there. And I still think that there's going to be the need for someone to actually look at it like you do. Yeah. Several years of experience helped in that, but actually having colleagues on the site and saying to them, look, this is what the crop is. Yeah. Okay. That's so it, therefore, then. how do we deal with it? Because there isn't an alternative. No. You can stand there as long as you want saying, we won't take it because it's not our specification, yeah. but you'll have nothing. So what do we need to do to be able to use it? If it doesn't grow, then we can't use it. That's the point. But if it's grain size, if it's a nitrogen year, have we got the facilities? What do we need to be able to do to make it usable? OK, well, bearing in mind there is an underlying thing on this podcast, believe mm. it or not, where we are trying to educate as mm. well as inform. Mm. And the key issue here is that anyone who comes out of, you know, working for Golden One for six months, having been at university mm. in London, and comes and gets a job, there needs to be a bit in between when he walks in the door and starts trading it and the bit where he has to make a decision about the quality of the crop, all right, mm. calling upon his colleagues to help. Mm. My point is that they've got to break that mentality that everything is in a clean box and they've got to go right we need to make a decision here are we going to change the spec and i worry you know when you do retire Mm. we've got a whole new generation of buyers coming in Mm. are they looking at the barley that's the first question i don't know on that one i mean i would actually say i look at the paper analysis more than samples in my sample room i mean we have so many samples analyzed to give us a cross-section of what the crop is after that we can make decisions that's the same as looking at the barley but actually yeah paper analysis analysis was one thing this year but there was an element about the spring barley where Mm. there were visually Mm. the thin manky ones that were obviously dead Mm. and if you had an overzealous intake Mm. guy going i'll pull him out and i'll pull him out and i'll pull him out that makes it 97 germ it's out that is still a trading decision. It'll come out in the screening machine. We need to forget that. Yeah, exactly. And we ask our laboratory to highlight the anomalies yeah. like that. So yeah. then I can go and say, they say, there's some samples here. Can I have a look at these? Because we haven't seen this before or whatever. Yeah. Then myself and my colleague, the technical director of production, we're going to have a look and say, OK, look, we can see what there is in the crop. It's our barley. It's on our doorstep. Let's be yeah. very clear. This is Andrew doing saying this, not mm. Bob King. Yeah. But boys and girls, listen to the dynamic. When there is a problem crop or people are saying to you, you ain't going to get that many tonnes if you can have that attitude on intake, please look at the analysis by all means, mm. but please get off your butts, walk down to the lab and actually physically look at the barley as well and do what Bob is talking about because that's a vital part. Every year it will throw up something that kicks the barley out if you want to kick it out. Yeah, anyway, sorry, but I went off. No, 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 it's fine. I mean, the flip side of that is, it goes back to on-farm sampling. Don't hide something. If you think it looks poor or whatever, put those in. We can only deal with what we can see. Yeah. We can't double-guess it. So if we see samples and we think the crop's at one level, but it's only because we haven't seen enough of the samples, and it turns up on our doorstep, 
will struggle. If we know in advance that it's a poor quality crop or something like that, we can start to make do, plans. Do you still have the odd person trying to sneak the dead donkey on the bottom of the load? We've got very, very fine <laughs> grates on the intake now to stop those sort of things going through. But, I mean, straw and chaff at the beginning, of the badly threshed grains, like orns, that. Yeah, yeah, orns and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's some seasons and that. How do you deal with orns when there's too many of them? Do you yeah. say, right, get out? If a truck finally can't finish tipping because the, the intake's full of his orns and things like that, we do ask him to take the rest of the load away, but we can't. It's in the pit. It's a lot of work for one of the blokes down the yard pushing it through the holes. Yeah, which is yeah. You know, yeah. certainly on the winter barley sometimes. Yeah. The trigger-happy combining people mm. are a little bit too swift. Yeah, You know, at Aylsham, we're obliged to take, you know, when the members come in mm-hmm. and we have to rely upon the dynamic of going through the mechanical system to break the awns up, mm-hmm. which it does, but they're not very popular, let's put it that way, with the lads in the granary. So we have an industry that's evolved and there's less of us and here I am urging people to be old-fashioned and actually physically look at the thing they're trading. You know, when you look back, the old brigade, if you like, the ones in recent times, there's very few people left and unfortunately two weeks ago, you know, your biggest customers and biggest friends, I'm sure, Tony Bannon passed away, as did Cyril Adams a few months earlier. Those were big moments, weren't they? Yes, I mean, those are probably two of the last of their generation of traders who um, would trade anything and certainly had different ways of doing things. But, yeah, fortunately, I mean, in their businesses carried on and will carry on, hopefully. I can think of many people of that group who grew up with the sample packets and everything else like that, but evolved. All I would say is that the ones who survived and carried on are the ones who looked after everybody's interests in the trade, not just their own. The farmers, the customers and things like that. And that almost became the replacement for some of the bag trade and things like that. You had to rely on them to be doing that work. For us, the connection back to the growers, because going back to your point about the variations in the crop, if over a period of time we have the same growers coming into our various sites and things like that. You feel very supportive to them as well because you want them there the following year because mm. a barley that's 10 miles from here is far better to us when it's 150 miles away in the south of England. Yeah. So what we rely on then is the intermediaries, Tony Bannon, Cyril Adams, myself, or to have that flow of information both ways and be honest with it and, as I say, not hide any problems that are in the crop because we want to be able yeah. to use that stuff, yeah. Which moves mm. you know, really quite neatly onto your groups. It must have been your decision to form groups, you personally. As we increased our capacity at Great Rybra in the late 90s and building new multis and that, it really began to cause me grief that malting barley was being grown in Norfolk and being transported out to Burton-on-Trent mm. or out by coasters. We were having to bring barley up from the south of England mm-hmm. to replace it. There was a grain group based around RJ Siemens, which mm. had a, a big count. We couldn't access that barley. Seifer, the Seifer grain. Seifer grain, yeah. What we found is that we were having to bring barley into Norfolk to replace barley that was going out, which mm. seems illogical for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the idea of having a partnership with growers, but not cutting out the merchanting part of it, which is what was always the fear, oh, they wanted to deal direct with farms. As a business from day one, and I've been challenged by our owners and various about going direct to farm. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it just that model, which might work for some of our competitors in different parts of the country, where you've got a monopoly. Well, well, you've got a surplus. Yeah, or you've got a surplus, yeah. So in this place, you need to be able to trade with everybody. If we were trading direct to farm, immediately that farm has got a problem. You've got to replace it from somewhere else. Well, you're just not going to do it. So I made it very clear that we wanted to work with partnerships. Mm. So... We started what was the Norfolk Multibolly Producer Group, and that goes back into the turn of the century, yep. uh, the millennium. And really, all we were asking for was long-term supply agreements from growers. It was quite rudimentary. They would supply it. We'd agree prices with the merchants at harvest and move on. 
We kind of ruined. I, I yeah. was part of that. We yes. kind of ruined that because Alshon Grain, which was an original member, mm. merged with a national group. And once mm. you merged with a national group, it was no longer specifically Norfolk Malting Party, which completely undermined the dynamic. So I apologise. I yeah, did no. kind of screw that one up. Yeah. But from that, you were able to form the ABC. Yeah. So we knew that there's a hardcore, a large number of growers out there who would like to see their barley go a shorter distance. Um, so we sat down with Adams and Howling and Bannams, who were, still were the two biggest suppliers. We were a smaller business at that point. And said, look, we want a partnership. We want you to manage it for us. But we need growers involved in it from day one. And so... From day one, we've had a steering group, which has always had at least four growers in. Yeah. And what we established very quickly was that the biggest bugbear in for the whole of the farming industry was allowances. Mm. And so I've always had a philosophy is that you only take a deduction for something that we can't use. So whether it's small corns or moisture or whatever, taking a deduction on nitrogen if it's going to go in the same silo, which was my background as a oh, trader yeah. in Dalgetty. Oh, yeah, it was all yeah. about averaging the price down all the time. Mm. We turned it around and said, well, okay, there are things that you can do which are actually a benefit to us. Yep. Low moisture out of harvest, yep. if you've dried it and you haven't done the germination any damage, means I haven't got to dry it, there's a bonus there. Grain size, if you had cleaning equipment mm-hmm. and you could put it up so we didn't take any out, well, if we're going to take deductions for screenings yep. out, yep. Yep. pay it back on the other side. And the same with the moisture. So yep. we started with that sort of discussions with growers. What yep. else? Averaging on contracts. You get five loads in, make the expect, and one's out and things like that. Yeah. It's very difficult to do it, but actually we've worked out if we widen the minimum specifications, if you fell outside that, you really had got a problem. So we did the averaging by a lower minimum screening retention yeah. and still allowing when moisture is to be a little bit higher to take in later through the season. So it built up that way and we initially asked growers to sign a minimum quantity for three years, varieties to be decided every year. And as our business moved on to making more distilling malt here, less exports and things like that, we were able to finesse what we wanted. So we could give growers two or three years' notice of the varieties and the general nitrogen areas we wanted, rather than having to accept what the crop had been produced. Yeah. It's ridiculous you for the grower... You could direct the group. The yeah. group is a relationship. You're able to say, right, we're going to move on to, for the want of a better phrase, tungsten in three years' time, yeah. which you, you may yeah. or may not be. But the point is you can flag it, discuss it, and then it isn't news when they're actually ordering the seed two years hence. Yeah, and then the farmer who's five miles down the road, who's happened to grow one variety because the seeds company's told him this is the greatest... <laughs> thing since sliced bread suddenly finds that well we don't want it well it was never there so it it was about that i mean and it was also particularly the abc group about work best for the growers and for us so the classic example is we still grow flagon yeah because a lot of the particularly on the north norfolk coast up that way it just carries on working now we've got customers used for it so we had to basically keep the variety going yeah but it was because growers wanted some wanted to grow craft on slightly stronger land Mm-hmm. we're adapted for that but it was a partnership so that's the driving force behind it we're now into working on to our fifth three-year contract going forward was that your best decision you know in your trading career you uh, look I, I, I think in terms of the concept and the benefits for our business because yeah, you can sell right, that right, can't you yeah you, right first time to, we haven't been able to leverage the story with big customers as well as i thought we might be able to but I think the whole sustainability discussion going forward will allow us to turn around and say, OK, we've been doing this for a long, long while. The barley's local and things like that. So there's 100,000 tonnes of barley in that group. So mm-hmm. supplying Ditchingham and Rybra, a little bit going down to Missley occasionally. Mm-hmm. Although East Anglia, we were getting more barley from East Anglia. East Anglia still imports barley because mm-hmm. there's a lot of malting capacity. Mm-hmm. We've doubled our capacity at that period of time. 
Berry did. So it's still sucking it in. So we invested in uh, building some storage down on the M4 to collect at harvest time. Yeah. So we have a small little group down there of growers who can run their barley into this store that we built and then our trucks bring it back later in the year when we want it. See, that in itself, mm. I mean, that's, it's the model that I've mm. used in the time I've been at Aylsham. You know, we've mm. developed a business on the back of almost the Dalgetty model. We're bulkers, mm. if you like, mm. but it's very specifically with farmers so you know what you're getting and, and you can segregate mm. properly. Yeah, it's the model of service, isn't it? You know, yeah. by providing someone in the south of England with a place to take malting barley, there's, there's no no maltings in the south of England anymore, are there? So it's like, well, either they're not going to grow it at all, mm. which is going to make you know harder to buy, or someone has the bright idea to do that. And it's a bit of risk management for us, because if we have a poor quality crop in East Anglia, I've got 20,000 tonnes mm. down there. Now, sometimes, I mean, some years, we've sent that to Scotland when they've had a problem there. Mm. So it's a bit like that. So we have that group there, and then all our business in Scotland is now... 95% pre-harvest contracts. Some of them are lined with individual distillers. Again, tend to be rolling contract. We've tried to be open on our contract in what we can take, where we can offer a bonus or whatever. I get waved, mm. Scotland waved at me mm. in the sense that you know the merchants up there can pretty well dictate terms because there is a surplus it's like can you take it it's going to be wet you know don't charge me too much on the moisture but underlyingly i think it's easier even yeah though. scotland's moving from a surplus to a deficit because there's molding capacity being built up there yeah green schemes are reducing the area of planting such like that and the alternatives are coming into scotland which weren't before i mean we're seeing ad plants all over the place and things like that all i would say about our scotland operations is it follows our concept of mm. having yeah. control People say I'm a pedant because I have all these contracts and I have the farmers' names. Now, I don't deal with the farmers, but they're there in terms of the traceability, but also I can flick through and say, well, I'm sure that's been growing for a 20 years person, something like that. That relationship is there, but the merchants are there to... Save you lots of whinging in your left ear. Absolutely, yeah. And I deal with merchants who are prepared to go that extra bit in terms of giving that service rather than just saying, no, it's a blank, I sell you this and I don't tell you any more about it. Look, there's a load of farmers Mm. listen to this podcast Mm. and they all think they're really lovely and not any trouble whatsoever. But the reality is they don't like claims, they don't like phone calls, they don't like anything not going smoothly. Mm. And their perception is that they're going to be done regardless. So it's kind of, you are saving yourself a a large amount of, well, grief, really. The merchant is there to absorb some of that Mm. stuff. And you say, right, this is what we're doing. We're doing the best we can. Here's the story. Go and tell 50 people that, Mm. as opposed to you having to have 50 phone calls. If we were dealing direct to farm, we'd need to employ the people you do. There's no savings in what we pay for merchanting, per se. I would be paying direct wages if I had to employ the people. From day one, it's just been a non... Yeah. argument for me. The other thing was your involvement in the Marisotta. You know, Tony Bannum and Robin Appel took on the Marisotta variety and to an outsider, I think I said this last week, it's a brilliant move, absolutely outstandingly brilliant with the benefit of hindsight and the way that the product was marketed. It's that and the ABC group that I see you from a distance, your finest decisions, you know. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, Marisotta is slightly different insofar as there was a ready market for it in the UK, mm. but it was a declining market. In terms of the number of brewers, I mean, ale production was going down. Yeah. Lager production was going up. Beer production total was probably going down. But there was a lot of regional brewers who were still wedded to Marisotta, mm. if they could have it. But it had been declining both in terms of area production sorry, and quality of the grain. So, yes, the decision to go out and back it was a no-brainer up to a point. But what actually, in the wider picture of Marisotta, what has been Marisotta's saviour is the craft brewing revolution. Yeah. So if that hadn't happened, Marisotta wouldn't be grown now. No. Because the domestic brewing industry, the people who used it, 
had actually fallen away. So, I mean, yeah, so, but there's the lesson, isn't it? Yeah. The, you know, unpredicted, well, thank goodness mm. everybody started to move away from just drinking disgusting lager. They actually yeah. went back to the stuff, you know, proper ale. And the story is when you're setting up a small brewery or setting up a small distillery or setting up anything small, it needs to be a story, doesn't it? And Maris Otter is as old as me. Yeah, it works in these breweries and they're wedded to it. I'm disappointed. And then as long as the accountants don't get involved in these, some of these breweries and say, OK, what could we be saving by using something else? Yeah. And the brewer says, well, well technically I could brew with that, but... but it ain't quite going to be the same. It might it? not be the same. It's about yeah. the authenticity yeah. of true old yeah. variety. Yeah. But again, that's just part of our portfolio in, because of our customer mix in here, whether it's the Marisotta, the Flagon, whether we're producing Pyranthocide in free malts for some brewers, whether we're still making some organic malts. I mean, our sister business down in uh, Missley Edme, we malt a lot of wheat for mm-hmm. them. Now, that's not coming into the brewing industry. That's going into the baking industry. We malt some rye, some oats, all of which require us to have a bit more knowledge about the provenance and the route to it. We couldn't just phone up and say, OK, we want to malt wheat, feed wheat, send it in. Well, that's perhaps what would have happened, but yeah, we no, need to know yeah. a bit more and things like no, that. But, but again, there is something else we can do that helps again with growers because within the ABC group, a lot of them grow some wheat. If you want wheat up here, it doesn't have to be dry wheat because we're going to malt it. So we can give that benefit to yeah, the no, growers by saying, yeah, it's okay, yeah, good, as long as it, it's, it's tested for Don, does anything else, I'm not fussed. I'll just treat it like malting barley if it's a little bit damp. Mm. The deduction is the water, not the wow. drying charge. So it's allowing the growers and the trade to know that those opportunities are out there. But we need the feedback both ways. Well, it's a very fair mm. thing, isn't yeah. it? You could have that money and everyone wouldn't begrudge yeah. you it because they haven't invested in a dryer. But yeah. if you're going to give yeah. it to them and say, this is a real water for being part of my group, then yeah, good for you. Yeah. That's what makes people stay. I get that. Yeah, if you want any more rye, by the way, yes. I've, I've got a yeah. bit. Rye goes from feast to famine, rye does. Yeah. yeah, well, it's certainly not famine this year. I'm very conscious. To, um, I want to talk to you about the market. And if you don't mind, we're going to do a second podcast yeah i think yeah. because there's mm. is something to, to be discussed mm. so in kind of like taking you from where you started to where we are now and you know the observations about the grain trade in the future you know we've got some very teflon people in this industry now who don't want to get grubby with such things mm. as looking at the mm. stuff where do you see the future for malting barley in norfolk the malters that we have and our competitors have in east anglia aren't going anywhere so that demand is going to stay there we reconfigure. I mean, we all need to reinvest over a period of time. I mean, mm-hmm. it's quite common. We've got applications in with planners and things like that to reinvest here at Ryborough, possibly at Ditchingham. So the market is there. I mean, they're going to be growing it here as long mm-hmm. as anyone's growing yeah. yes. product, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, the flip side of that is, and we are concerned up to a point, is what will happen with production of malting barley with some of the support schemes out of it? I mean, a lot of malting barley historically has been grown on land that could really go out of production. It went mm. out, some of it went out in the old days of set aside, went out, mm. there was always that. But actually, on some of these more extensive estates on relatively low quality land, we're concerned that we could actually see the production of malting barley mm. just go down by the fact of people saying, okay, well, there's no point to farm that. I'm not, it's not, I'm not doing malting barley, I'm not going to farm that bit of. No, I'm going to get land. paid for having, you know, yeah. rewilding it yeah. or whatever yeah. you want to call the yeah. nature, you know, recovery plan. Mm. Yeah, that is going to take 30,000 mm. hectares out of production at least yeah. and maybe more. You're right. That concern, it's got to make it much, much tighter. Supply. Yeah, so even more reason to having our supply chains and robust and being the customer of choice rather than, oh, well, they're just the same. We could sell it anywhere else. Mm. I think one thing that probably will help is the move to spring cropping. Mm-hmm. Because definitely in my time here, the proportion of winter to spring malting barley has just flipped around completely. Yeah. We're far more users of spring barley. Winter barley is really for the ale industry. There's a mm. rotational place for winter yeah. barley. Yes. With following crops, etc., you know, rape. And so... Mm. 
Right, lots of parts of the country won't bother, but in this part of the world, mm. they will. And I think, again, people forget, you can have a disastrous spring barley harvest sometimes mm. and have a reasonably good winter barley harvest. Mm. It's a wonderful backstop. Mm. So I don't think it needs to die complete, but... No, it's... no, I mean, if you included the Marisotta in with our ABC, which it's not, we would be still 50-50 winter-spring. Yeah. All our additional barley we buy is spring barley. Yeah. So we can source all the winter malted barley we want from within the ABC group, yeah. and yeah. the Marisota sits there anyway. So if we were trying to buy the quantities of winter barley we were buying in the 1990s yeah. as a proportion on the, the bigger production area we have, then we would be struggling. Because plant breeding hasn't taken the winter malting barley anywhere, really. Well, no one's in, in, what's been no, the incentive. No, the market's so small, so it's almost a self-defeating situation. Winter malting barley has its place for protection and uh, mm. the early harvest. We don't often get nitrogen problems. We might get a few screening problems, but it's a safer crop to be harvested in July than spring barley getting caught here in the third week of August, fourth week of August uh, round here. Absolutely. Yeah. I think on that note, I mean, long live malting barley is a specialist and niche mm. crop for this county. I'm not going out of this county. It's going to be majorly important for my business in the future. Mm. So I think at that point, I'd like to say, you know, Bob, for this week's podcast, thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome. And we'll be back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.